Okay, so let's talk about music. To, I, I'm Sergio Barrer. I am a composer and a pianist of a classical persuasion. And today my guest is Robert Sheldon, uh, one of the foremost composers of band music, as I've been finding out after I'm start, I've did my research. I met him doing a, a presentation for a CASMEC uh, conference about fixing things in band music and I liked him and I said, well, maybe he'll be my guest. And then I started looking and I found that he's, uh, he's quite well known for his band music. Could you tell us a little bit of your story as a musician to start with? Sure, happy to Sergio, thanks for inviting me. Uh, my parents were actually involved in show business. So when I was growing up and was very small, uh, they were entertainers. They were actually on the vaudeville circuit way back in, you know, uh, in the day. So uh, I was constantly surrounded by music and singing and musical activities. And um, when my, my mother and father retired from that, they uh, at that point decided, my mom decided to open a dancing school. And therefore there were recordings of all kinds of music, all the ballets, all the, you know, modern jazz, all every, you know, popular music. So I was just constantly had the, uh, had access to an enormous amount of, uh, of recordings from the time I was, you know, four or five years old. And that was just part of our household, you know, music. Uh, we always had a piano in the house for a time we had organs in the house. And uh, so when I became old enough to play in, um, in school ensembles, I started on violin and then later took up trombone and, and went from instrument to instrument uh, all the way through high school until by the time I graduated from high school, I, I was playing uh, trombone in the wind ensemble and trumpet in the marching band and oboe in the concert band and clarinet in the symphonic band and flute in the orchestra and sang in the choir and accompanied all my friends on piano for their solos and played sax in the jazz band, played uh, woodwinds professionally all the way through high school and then wound up getting an oboe scholarship to the University of Miami. And um, I was heavy into jazz at the time, thought I might be a jazz major, but I decided to go music education uh, still played in all the jazz ensembles, um, had a wonderful experience with my undergraduate studying composition with Clifton Williams and arranging with Alfred Reed. And um, my conducting teacher was Frederick Fennell and had, uh, had wonderful uh, models there and put myself through school by playing professionally on Miami Beach at the time, which is the good thing about being at the University of Miami. And then started my teaching career. And everything came to a crashing halt because when you're teaching, you don't have time for anything else. And yeah. I, I did miss it, but it took a long time for me to be able to learn enough about my teaching to be able to uh, actually think about anything else. So after four years of teaching, um, I got my master's degree in conducting and continued to take composition lessons. And it was at that point that I had, I had, owned my skill enough as a teacher that it wasn't taking every waking and sleeping second of my day and night. And I was able to start focusing on, on writing again. And that meant a lot to me. And, um, and I've been writing ever since, um, started getting more and more things published. And, and now I probably have about 300 pieces published or so. And um, I've had a wonderful time conducting all over the country and in Australia and Italy and Japan and, and uh, Australia and, and uh, 
China and Germany and Italy, I mean, just different places. So it's been really fun having a chance to meet uh, students around the world and other professional musicians around the world to work with them. And uh, it's been a wonderful experience. So uh, now that I am at the, t at the place I am in my life, I'm able to do just what I want to do. And that means I still go out and conduct, although I haven't done that in a year, but uh, hoping that uh, that's going to start again. And while I've been home, I've been able to not only continue my writing, which is mostly on commission, so it's, you know, keeping up with the schedule, but it's also been doing some other things like um, completely re uh, revisiting my website and redesigning it and finding pieces that are that were never published and that were only in pencil and paper that I don't even have a recording of and resuscitating them and bringing them back, refreshing them. Uh, they needed a good editor. And now that I've had all this editing skill, I can apply it to those pieces that were never published and were never recorded and, um, and be able to give them a new life. Because I, I had the epiphany that if you write a piece of music and it does not have a way to be easily seen or heard by anyone, essentially it, ceased, it ceases to exist. And right. that's a shame. So um, my website, after I redesigned it, I realized it's, it's quickly becoming uh, almost like a personal library of all the pieces that I've written. And I'm, they're not all up there yet, but a vast majority of are, and there's scores available, there's recordings available, and there's a way for people to access those. So, that's my musical life. That's great. That's that's a great point to be at. You know, it's a. Uh, yeah, I was I was uh, seeing in your resume resume it says that you have been awarded twenty eight times the ASCAP Standards Award or something. What does that mean? What is that award? Well, the, uh, the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers has a uh, an, uh, an award that they give out. Um, to many people, it isn't just to me, but uh, to many people across the spectrum who are members of ASCAP. And it's, a, uh, it's an award to help encourage you in different fields. So for instance, all of mine are in the area of symphonic music. Uh, so uh, they, have, they see what I write and they go, we want to encourage you by giving you this award. So um, every year I, I've been getting those awards which has been very nice for about 28 years or so. And um, uh, so it, it's just a very nice thing that they do for their membership. Well, that's, that's good to know. I didn't even know about that. I'm an ASCAP member and I didn't know that. So <laughs> the first thing I learned today. Now, uh, you sent me two pieces. Uh, why did you choose those two pieces in particular? Good question. Um, I probably could have chosen any two, but the reason I chose a Longford legend was uh, it had, it's, I wanted to choose pieces that were in vastly different genres. Uh, one of the things I love about writing is um, I like to make every piece about as different as I can make them. In other words, it's sort of like uh, I want each piece to have its own life, its own personality, its own identity. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to write the next piece to be like the one I just wrote, which is a real problem when you're a published composer, because publishers generally want you to write something exactly like your last best-selling piece. Like that sold really well, do another one just like it. And I fought against that my entire life. It's like, you know what? 
that piece that you like so much is still out there. People can still buy that. <laughs> they don't need a version two. Let's try something a little different. And it always was a very um, challenging and a bit disheartening conversation that I would have with my publishers because they, and, and, and in a lot of cases, pieces that I wrote, they really didn't want to publish because they were too different from other things I had written. Case in point, a Longford legend. So the reason a Longford legend, I thought I would give it to you to, uh, to look at today is it is all original music, but one of the things I've always liked to do is to set aside a, a puzzle, a musical puzzle or challenge for myself when I write. So in a Longford legend, I wanted to write things in the style of Granger, Von Williams, Gustav Holst, but still have it be original but with a nod to them because I love their music so much. So what I did was to find three 18th century Irish folk ballads. And I didn't use the melodies because I couldn't find them anyway, but I wanted to use the words from them to inspire music that I could write for this three movement suite. Now, the reason this pertains to what we just were talking about is I wrote this for the publisher I was working with at the time and they said, um, you know, we don't think anybody would ever play this. So no, oh. we don't want to publish it because we don't think anybody would ever play this piece. Well, at the same time, John O'Reilly, who at that point in time was the concert band editor for Alfred Music, which is the job I had for 17 years later, I had that job. At the time, it was John O'Reilly. And he had reached out to me and said, you know, I understand you have contractual obligations and relationships with other publishers. But if you'd ever like to send something to us, even if it's something that another publisher might not want, I'd love to see it. I sent him along for Legend. It was immediately published and is the highest selling concert band piece at Alfred Music. And the other publisher that I was with made mention of that later, said, we really made a mistake with that one, didn't we? And I said, yeah, I think you did. <laughs> but that's why that piece I thought was of interest because who knows how many other pieces by other, other composers are out there that are just some of the best things you could ever want to play or hear, but can't see the light of day because a publisher doesn't like it for some reason. Um, I had, I've had pieces that were published, but uh, distributors didn't like the title. So they didn't think they'd want to publish it or want to promote it. That has only happened once in my life, but still those things can happen. So the world of music is a very complicated place. Um, but because of that, I thought Longford Legend might be a, a good place to start because okay. it's very different from pretty much anything else I've written, but it, it, um, it has the, the musical game challenge puzzle in it that I wanted to do to see if I could write something in the style of. Um, and it also is a, uh, a piece that really set me on a new path in terms of my publications with Alfred Music. Great. Okay, that's a great introduction for the piece. Uh, just one question. So let me make sure I got it clear. So this this is original melodies, original everything. You just took the the the, the ballads, right? The the, I, the I, lyrics. I the, the lyrics. Right. Uh, and the uh, the interesting thing about the lyrics is the way I found out about this entire genre was listening to a Prairie Home Companion. No, I'm oh. sorry, not a Prairie. Another, another Garrison Keillor. It was called The Writer's Almanac. 
which was oh. a six minute program that was six minutes before the hour on national public radio on my drive home. And I used to like to listen to it coming home from school because uh, Garrison Keillor has this fabulous voice. And one of the things he would do is talk about this day in history, all the different things that happened. And then the last minute or two, he would read a poem as only Garrison Keillor can do. And on my way home, I heard him read the poem, A Longford Legend. It's before computers. It was before internet. Uh, I had a very diff, I was driving. I didn't stop and write the title down. I had a really hard time finding that poem. But my librarian in my local community library took on the challenge, found a book that was about this high, huge book, thousands of pages called An Anthology of Irish Poetry, and she found the poem. And I looked at it and realized, because my original thought was I wanted to write a suite based on the poet, but this poet was anonymous. So instead of being able to write a, three or four movements based on the poems of a particular poet, I just chose them based on the, uh, the genre, which was 18th century Irish street ballads. So I took the lyrics uh -huh. and then I wrote the music based on that. Great. It, it, uh, it's interesting because it sounds like a song and I thought, I thought you had taken an, an Irish ballad and just do a nice, you know, but symphonic band arrangement. So you fooled me, that's for sure. <laughs> well, and that's what I, I'd like to do. I, I want to, I'd like for people to be able to hear it and feel as though it's very authentic. I was quite um, charmed to find out one of the very first performances of the piece I was doing with an honor band in Florida. And I was telling the students the story of each movement. Um, you know, this first movement with the retired sea captain who, who bought a, a steamboat and put it on his lake and didn't know how to how to stop the boat. And so everybody on the ship dies because the boat has to keep circling around and around forever. It's a, it's a very, it's a funny but tragic story because in Irish poetry, most things have to do with drinking and death. And this of course had to do with death, um, but it's humorous. Uh, second movement where the, the young hunter and his wife, um, he's out uh, or his fiance, he goes out hunting. She sees a storm coming, tries to go find him to warn him. He sees something in the bushes and shoots and all too late finds out he has killed his fiance. And it's a tragic, tragic, tragic poem. Yeah. And the music is there to represent that. And the third movement, which is about a farmer who the devil comes to greet him and say, you know, I, I understand your wife is just the plague and torment of your life. So I'm gonna take her to hell. And he does, but she's so horrible, he returns her to the farmer. And so um, it's very, it's, you know, I thought, well, this, this is very lighthearted. I'm going to make it a jig, a 6-8 jig. And there's even parts of the Dies Irae in there. And it was just very tongue in cheek. So when I did this with the honor band, this one tuba player came up to me after the rehearsal and said, you know, my, I'm Irish. And my grandfather used to sing that song to me, but that's not at all how it goes. I said, oh, you know, you know the, the song that goes with those words? And he said, yes. Oh, I wow. said, can you sing a little bit for me? And it turned out it was a jig in 6-8 time. <laughs> so um, I, what I asked him to do, because he had a really good Irish accent, I had him read each of the poems before each movement that we played. And, uh, and that way it kind of gave something a little bit of extra to the performance. Great. I... I... I did a piano album 
with something similar, but I wrote the poem and I wrote the piece and I have, it's called Almost Songs. And uh, it's Almost Songs because you have the lyrics, you have the music, but they're not together. So anyway, let's hear this. I, I found it quite charming and, uh, and uh, very, very well written. So, so here it goes. I'm gonna share my screen and, my, and, the, and the piece.
So I hope some of the passion and the angst comes through there. Okay, yeah, definitely. That's the end of, of the second piece? That's okay. the end of the second movement. And the second movement. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to have you, because I'm going to substitute the part of the Zoom with the actual piece. I'm going to ask you to give me the comments that you told me during the presentation to about what about the two pieces. Uh, the first one, you were pointing out that the beginning is like the captain talking. Well, yeah, the, the, the captain in the story, he's, he's a very arrogant uh, individual. And so I wanted to feel like he was just sort of strutting very proudly around his steamship that he bought. And um, there's actually a place in the music. No one ever sees it, but it's there. I pointed out in the music, but it's around the fifth or sixth measure. There's a big crescendo <clears throat> in a few yeah. parts. And then there's a big um, bass line, kind of like a up, down. So it's almost like he slips on a wet spot on the deck and falls flat. No one <laughs> ever sees it. But when I conduct it, I make sure that the students bring that out or that the musicians really highlight that. And then um, what the, uh, the, the music goes to a minor key. And that's where uh, it's really, I, I wanted the feeling of the crew who really detest their captain, the drudgery of the work that they have to do, swabbing the deck and doing the things they're doing. But then after the first iteration of that, then the captain and the first mate make their appearance, the trumpet and trombone and octaves, and they're inspecting the ship. So of course, the the unpleasant uh, remarks of the rest of the crew get softer while they do their, you know, their inspection. And then the third time that is, is played, there's this descending kind of figures. It's in the in alto and soprano voices. And it almost sounds like a sinking feeling. And although the ship doesn't really sink, uh, everyone does die. So um, that, that, that downward thing is what I was really looking for there. And then that ends and there's just suddenly the uh, original theme being played by just a saxophone quartet. And that was really a nod to Percy Granger because, I mean, as you know, Granger was a phenomenal pianist, but when he joined the military band, he chose to play saxophone. So since I wanted this movement to be as Granger-esque as possible, that was a nod to Percy Granger to make it a saxophone quartet. And then the piece just sort of ends in a somewhat lighthearted manner, but uh, I wanted to bring out all those different aspects of the story. Right, and then the second movement it's a dialogue, you said, between the... The second movement is, a, is really a dialogue between the hunter and his fiance. So the entire uh, piece is really put together as a series of duets. So you're always hearing a duet, which just kind of brings to mind this amorous kind of thing, even though it's very, very sad. And at the end, uh, the flute holds the note for about as long as they can hold it. And that's really the memory that he has of her as it just sort of fades off into nothing. Wow, okay. All right, so let's, you know, the reason I I asked you to, to go over those things again is because I'm gonna replace it. So it, sure. it, it's not gonna come. Okay, and we're going into the third one, which is the, the one with the devil, right? That's right. Okay, so let's let's hear it and then you'll give me some comments on it and then we'll continue, okay? Certainly. Okay, here we go. Thank you. 
Bravo. But you'll notice in this recording, which I did not produce this recording, um, I wish I had, um, the entire first section of that third movement is too slow. Um, oh. And the conductor realized it when he got to the Dies Irae. It's like, you know what, we've just got to pick up the tempo. So that was the, the ending tempo was the tempo it should have been at the beginning. Okay. Um, but that's just the way it is. Uh, the poem is actually really very funny. Um, there's a couple lines in it. I can't remember all of it, but I remember one is uh, um, when the devil, he, he brings the man back and he says, uh, brings the, his wife back to the farmer. And he says, uh, here's your wife safe and well. He says, uh, I've been a devil the most of my life, but I never was in hell till I met with your wife. I mean, very, very funny words in, in the poem. And you'll notice the end, there's in the cello rondo. Uh, part of the poem is that when he took her to hell, it took seven years to get there, but she was so horrible that he brought her back in nine days. So that's what it is. He's, he's bringing her back. And so it gets faster and faster. I see. I can see that. The, I, I could see the part of the, of the music where things got horrible for the guy. <laughs> it is there in the music. Very nice. Okay. Um, let me ask you something as a, as a composer, uh, how does your process work? Do you get inspired by something? Do, do you need like a text? Do you need, what, how does it happen for you? I'm always curious about this. Well, deadlines provide a good inspiration. Um, <laughs> but but in, in, in many cases, uh, I, one of the things I, I mean, I, this one obviously comes from literature, comes from poetry. Yeah. So finding these three poems, it originally had four poems that I used, but one of them was a little, uh, it's Irish poetry and one was a little too adult for most content. So I just made it the three movements, which I think is enough, but uh, it could be poetry. It can be literature. It can be paintings. I've written pieces based on uh, artistic uh, techniques. A piece called Art in the Park that is based on four different specific works of art and the orchestration is, mimics the actual brushstroke techniques. Uh, I've done a lot based on different, you know, like legends from different places, uh, uh, historical, um, you know, just people in, in history and events that took place. I, I'm so disappointed. Um, I mean, it's a horrible thing for many reasons, but I wrote a piece a couple years ago, which I thought was gonna be one of my biggest selling pieces really widely played based on the glorious revolution or glorious insurrection of 1667. And it's called glorious insurrection. Do you think I, anyone's gonna play that piece now? I, I'd, be hard, I'd be hard pressed to perform a piece called glorious insurrection now after January 6th. That was such a terrible thing moment for our country's history. And it, although it, it has nothing to do with the United States and it's from, you know, 400 years ago and all of that, um, yeah. it could be a stretch. But, uh, you know, those types of things, I've, I've traveled a lot and uh, I, I've written a lot of pieces based on some of my travel experiences. Uh, uh, I was sailing off the north coast of Libya a few years ago and experienced the Sirocco winds, wrote a piece called... Uh, uh, Oh gosh, is it called? Uh, I, I've lost the title. Winds of the Sirocco, uh, just uh, kind of a based on the feelings that I got in that moment, which were really quite thrilling. Um, I've I've written pieces based on all kinds of places and people and things and art and music and um, history and legends. Uh, you know, if I'm commissioned to write a piece for a 
a group in a particular area, I'll usually do a deep dive into the local history and see if I can find some sort of story or legend or something historical figure or an interesting story from there that the audience will be able to kind of grab onto and then help them enjoy the piece a little bit more. And as a consequence, I've, I've learned a lot just through my writings about people and places and things I probably never would have. So I find it very interesting. It's a great kind of stepping off point for me before I write. That's, that's fascinating. I, um, I want to, I don't know if we'll have the time to hear the whole next piece, but I was struck by how much, uh, like a symphony orchestra, this band piece sounds. The symphonic celebration, uh, it struck me because it's really amazing. I, in that sense, uh, where what where does this piece come from? Uh, how did it come? That one is it's a very it doesn't have any specific uh, genesis. Um, the the person who asked me to write the piece uh, is a friend of mine, a band director in the Orlando area, in a community right across from Disney World called Celebration, Florida, and um, I've noticed oh. there really there was no. There was no piece by the title, a symphonic celebration. I thought, well, they should have a piece that's called that. Um, and I don't really know. It didn't have any particular inspiration. It's just what I was in the mood to write at the time. Okay, sounds good. I want to show it because I think it's it's remarkably the the the, the well done craft of this thing. I I really enjoyed it. So. I'll let me let me put it on.
Very nice. One of the things I think that is a somewhat of a constant for me, because I, like I said, I try to make every piece as different as possible, is I am very much a melody person. You can probably already tell me. Yes. Uh, to me, singable and memorable melodies are what I love to write the most. Um, I want people leaving a performance of my music and having something that they will be humming on the way out. Um, or just something that touches them in, in some way. It may not be something they can recall immediately, but um, I think that writing melodies is really a difficult, memorable melodies is a really difficult thing to do. And, um, and so for me, that, that's, that's just sort of my focus when I write as I, I, I'm very much a melody person. Yeah, I found myself humming one of your Langford uh, tunes when I was, after I heard it and I was going out, I was humming it. So I can tell, I can tell that you're a melody person. <laughs> it, it is not hard to figure that out. Okay, <laughs> well, that was a very agreeable piece and a, a very agreeable uh, visit with you. And I, I, I want to- I really enjoyed it, Sergio, thank you so much. It's, uh, it's very nice to always to, to spend some time with other musicians and composers chatting about music. Well, it is. And as a composer, you being a composer, you, you understand better than anyone. Um, the process of what we do in writing is a very lonely activity. Yeah. Um, you do it in a, in a, at least for me, I, I'm most successful doing it alone in a quiet place where there's no nothing around to bother me. Now, I have actually done a lot of writing on airplanes where there's other stuff going on. I used to try and do more of that, and I would put a headset on and think maybe no one will bother me, but it doesn't work that way. Somebody would invariably come up, your headset's on, you're involved in something, and they tap you on the shoulder. Excuse me, are you a musician? <laughs> So I've, I've just learned for me, um, it's about finding a, uh, a comfortable place to be, to write, where you can be productive and do it in the most efficient way possible. And you're actually looking at my surroundings where I do that. Uh, what you can see behind me here, and they're actually all around, these are uh, cover designs from compositions that I've had published. I see. And not all publishers do pretty cover designs. Most right. of them have a standard cover, but it so happens that the two publishers that do unique cover designs for their advanced works, I happen to write for them over the years. So I can look around my office and uh, see these cover designs that are framed, and I can remember uh, the moment when I wrote it. I remember what was going on in my life when I wrote it. I remember the wonderful people who asked me to write it for them. I can remember the ensembles that I've conducted the piece with. So it's a very happy place and also inspiring place for me to be, to be able to kind of bring on the creative juices. Well, that sounds, that sounds about right. I have a friend that does that totally when he needs to compose a piece just doesn't take almost even meals, you know, it, it just, and, and I find that it's a very productive thing to do. Anyway, thank you so much for sharing this with us. And uh, I hope we can keep in touch. And, uh, and I think that's all folks, as 
all that, that that's all folks <laughs> we're brothers cartoons you got it so, okay well, thank you again for inviting me and uh good luck with your continuing podcasts thank Thanks. you very much bye-bye